Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 7, Lessons from Indie Publishing, recorded at Gen Con 2011 by Jason Pitt, presented by David A. Hill Jr. of Machine Age Productions. I've worked for, I've, I've worked for in freelance and development for White Wolf, Catalyst, uh, Paizo, Green Ronin, lots, lots, lots of the major publishers out there. Uh, pretty much, if you, um, if it's a pretty well-known RPG, I've probably worked on it or have good friends with someone who did. Small community gaming is. Um, so, as I said, I'll talk a little bit about the logistics. Um, and then I want to more or less do a, a little bit of discussion, see if you guys have any questions, because I can lecture, I can go over crap like that all day, but really, that's not going to do anything but tell you those little anecdotes that I have. I, w- I would prefer to sort of address um, your specific concerns and curiosities. Um, how many of you guys are actually like either trying to publish a game or interested in doing so in the future? Just show a hand real quick. Okay, good, good, good. So that's, that's a majority of you. Um, how many have actively, like, actually published a game? Cool, cool. Define published. Yeah. Um, published, well, in this sense, I would say um, develop a project from start to finish and put it up for public consumption. Uh, I mean, like, that real, real abstract terms here is really, um, it's not a lot different than publishing for something for sale. I know you, you've been in the process for a long time. Right. I talk Game Chef, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Game Chef is, um, and that sort of thing. When, whenever you're just doing it alone, it's a little different. Whenever, whenever you're developing with a crew, that's, that's when the, the real sort of logistics questions come into play. Um, you might want to get that checked out. Um, so, um, oh, sorry. I'm going to start with a little bit with just the basic development process. Um, and one, let me preface that. When I say the development process, I mostly mean for um, small to mid publishers, because um, again, we're talking about indie publishing here. Uh, the process itself, from start to finish. I once had it described to me by a friend of mine that um, publishing a game is very similar to birthing a child. Um, no, no, you know, denigration meant to the women who have done so because you've obviously done a lot more than I have. Um, but it takes a very long time. It's a very big process, um, and there's a lot of considerations that have to go into it. I know, I've, I think the quickest game that I've ever seen published was about nine months. Um, so that's, that's the short end of that analogy. The long end, I've seen games take about three years um, until they hit the shelves. Um, Usually, if it takes more than about a year and a half to two years, it's not going to come out. Then if they do later, you know, you can, you can point to it and say, oh, crap, I, I, I developed that. Um, if you were developing in a, in a, in a crew, this is, this is RPGs. Like, nobody works in an office anymore. Um, if, if you want to work in an office and you actually want to have coworkers per se, in the RPG industry, you basically need to work for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, there, there are a couple of companies that have small offices, but for the most part, we all work from home. Um, we all commute via the internet. Uh, Twitter and Facebook are our water cooler, basically, and that's how we keep appraised of the events and affairs that are happening in the industry. Um, so, if you are developing a game, 
um, usually you have to sort of build uh, a virtual office. You have to get together the people that you want to get, and you have to um, you, you have to consider it a professional environment, whatever you're doing. Um, I personally, um, actually one of our artists, our cover artist for our most recent game is back there, Jenna Fowler. Uh, she um, understands my sort of virtual office philosophy. I use Skype. Um, and we have a Skype chat that is open that we could leave messages back and forth for the entire crew. Uh, even, if, even if the crew members are not working on the specific part of the product that we are talking about, I, I like them to be involved in the discussion. I like them to understand because really we're be building a cohesive whole. I am sure that every single one of you who has read RPGs has read an RPG that did not feel like a cohesive whole where the art disconnected with the writing or the development disconnected with the, the writing, the, the, the fluff versus the crunch, that sort of thing. In order to build something that is cohesive, that does communicate one single message, you really have to have a group of people that are brought together and they're all involved in a mutual conversation. It is not, um, it is not a coincidence that I consider RPGs themselves a conversation. That's what we do. It's campfire stories with dice, basically. Um, so in order to facilitate that, we um, really need to build that from the front end. If you are not having a conversation with your crew, your players are not going to have a conversation at the table. Um, that has to be followed through from the beginning to the end. So, if you're developing an in, in RPG, an RPG in general, first thing you got to do is you got to figure out what the hell you do. So, a mission statement is usually enough um, because. If the more development you work you do before you start bringing people in, the more that it's going to get torn apart. Again, analogy for a game itself, if you've ever planned a game and then watched your players run roughshod over it, uh, but still had a fun time, that's not dissimilar from developing an, uh, an RPG. Uh, if you bring a detailed, complex outline to the table and you have all of this vision, all of these ideas, they're not going to survive. You, you're gonna, you could look at your design document and then you look at the final product and you wonder how the hell you got there. And that's going to have a lack of clarity and vision. Uh, you're you're going to have that problem. If, if your design document doesn't look like the end product, you might have a cool product, but again, you're not going to be communicating that message, um, so it's going to fall apart at the table. When I, when I look to the crew that I am going to hire for a design document, I, I, I put together maybe three pages. This is what I want to do. This is the things I want to communicate. Uh, this is the process I want to get there. That's it. Then I start looking at the talent. The reason I hire talent is not because I have a glut of money sitting around that I, I want to just throw at people. It's because I want to bring their skills to the table. I want them to shine. If I did not want that, I would just write the thing myself, uh, which is, is, is a huge bit of labor, uh, but really, if you're going to hire someone, you're hiring, you're hiring their specific abilities. You're hiring the things that you cannot do that they can, uh, because if you bring those people together, you bring that talent to the table, then what you're going to have is a product in the end that is a conglomeration of all of these unique talents. Um, there is, a, there is a sort of axiom in freelancing uh, and in development that you can be one of three, or sorry, you can be two of three things. You cannot be all three, or at least most people cannot. And those things are friendly, fast, and, um, I'm sorry, friendly, fast, and affordable. 
Friendly also goes together with quality to an extent, uh, because you'll find that if someone is not bringing quality to the table, you are also not going to be friendly with them. Um, sometimes you can find all three. If you find those three, basically you, you keep them around and you worry yourself not to run them haggard. Um, but if you get two of those three things, stick with them. If you find someone that can consistently hit deadlines and do it within your budget, love that person. Let them know how much you appreciate them. Um, let them know, you know, just what value they're bringing to your product. Um, freelancers, any creative people in the world, they're going to be prima donnas uh, to an extent. We all have our, our insecurities. Whenever I write something and I know that, you know, it's not going to come out until next year, I'm going to, to worry the hell out of that product. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to be like, I would have done this differently. I would have done this differently. I'm such a hack. It's so terrible. I'm going to get panned on RPGNet. Um, and honestly, we need a little reassurance. Um, if you're working in a development crew, you have to have positive reinforcement. Sure, you have to criticize. You have to um, give the necessary constructive criticism to make the product better. You have to push people in order to achieve and succeed. But you have to remember to be positive. Even if someone brings it to the table that, I'm sorry, I can't hit the deadline. I know you have to print next week, but I need two weeks. I, it's, it's just not something that I can do right now. No amount of bitching at them is going to change that. If, like, sometimes you can harangue someone into tightening that deadline or fixing the problem, but usually whenever someone gets to the point where they're actually saying, Mr. Developer, I can't accomplish this goal you need. This is, these are the terms that I need to accomplish them on. You can, A, complain at them. Hope that they'll fix it. Hope that the universe will shift and that their mother will mysteriously come back from the dead and they don't need to go to a funeral or whatever. You can, B, <laughs> yeah, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Just, that's, if you take anything out of that, this, that's it. That's it. You can't bring their mothers back from the dead so they don't have to go to the funeral. Um, Zombies count. Uh, I don't. Well, it depends. I mean, if they had, if they're a zombie, they probably had a funeral. Uh, that, that's a whole level of complexity. That's like Game Design 202. Um, and the B, what you could do is um, you could let the project fall to shit. Unacceptable. Usually, by that point, you have other people that are writing on this project, and they they're they're invested in it. They want their work to be seen and. You have a product that has other stuff going on. Uh, you, you really need to get it done. You can see, drop them, and go with someone else. Nine times out of ten, that is a very bad idea. I've had to do it before. Um, it sucks because whenever, um, whenever you're studying two weeks after a deadline and you can't get a guy to answer his email about some art, and then you have to tell people, oh, I need some art tomorrow. Can you do some art tomorrow for me? Um, <laughs> that's hard. But it is, it is a fact of the industry. It's very, it's very difficult um, to get people to commit 100% to things. We're making pretending <coughs> on-time games. Uh, nobody's making a killing off of these things, um, e even the richest names in the industry. So you have to understand that nobody does this as their primary job, except for me and I'm poor. Um, so accommodate. That's the best thing that you can do. Accommodate, be positive, understand, talk to them. Communication. Communication is essential to every step of the process. 
Uh, if you are not in communication, you will fall short. I don't know how people did it in the 80s. I don't know how people did it before the internet, honestly. Um, I guess they just did it in their parents' basements and they had their development crew all living there too. I, I, I don't know. Um, before the internet, no idea how development happened. Uh, fortunately, I'm younger than that. Um, so keep in communication, accommodate these people, understand that they are real people. Understand that for the most part, if you work with someone, if you respect them, if you believe that they are doing things for, with the same passion and the same enthusiasm that you are, that they're not going to come and tell you that they can't do it because they don't want to or that they're being prissy. They're, they're telling you this because they've exhausted every other option. I know when I'm, I'm writing for a developer and I tell them I need two more days on my deadline, that's not, I can use two more days. No, that's something blew up and it's going to take two days to repair. Until then, I can't eat uh, or something. I believe, believe people, uh, sort of trust in the fundamental, uh, fundamental good nature of people. There will be some people that will screw you over in that regards, but it happens. Um, RPGs, exercise and trust, that conversation that you have at the table. If you do not have trust with your GM, with your fellow players, the game won't work. Same thing on the front end. You're basically just playing a game. It's just a little bit more boring and doesn't make as much money developing. Um, that's, that's the people. You find the talent, you trust them, you communicate with them, you work with them. Now the actual process, once you have the people in place. There's, a, um, there's an often, often touted myth in RPGs that if you are working in the development of games, that you always have a project going on, and that as long as a project is in development, you are working on it. That is complete bollocks. If a project takes two years, it is not because the writers took two years to write it. Usually it means the writers took six months at most. Um, how many of you have like written a novel? Couple of you, couple of you. Okay, so an RPG book, if you're going for like a moderate-sized book, D&D, um, like third edition, fourth edition, those are pushing 200 to 3,000, or 200 to 3,000 words. Um, or, sorry, 300,000. 200,000 to 300,000 words. Your average novel is 80,000. Um, which is to say that your average core RPG book clocks out at about three to four times a novel. Technically, you can write a novel in a month. A lot of people do it. Um, there are little contests on the internet where people write 50,000 uh, word novellas in a month. They're crap. They don't work. They have to be edited. They have to be basically torn apart, thrown away, and completely rewritten. If you write 50,000 words in a month, you are basically a machine or you're throwing crap at the wall and seeing what sticks. So, by that logic, you got a 300,000 word RPG. 50,000 words, if you're busting ass and you're making crap product, you can do it in a month. That is to say, if one person is doing an RPG, six months, and if they work constantly for six months, they have a crap product. And 
that's, that's just the very basics of that. Um, if you have two people, then that's three months to make a crap product on the writing side. RPG words take a lot longer than fiction words because you have to test them. You have to, um, you have to throw them at the wall and see what sticks. And what sticks, that's maybe 5% of it. Uh, that ends up going in the book. Then you gotta go back to the drawing board. You gotta throw more crap at the wall, see what sticks. Um, you gotta keep doing it until eventually you have enough to really have a coherent product. That can take a very, very long time. If you have a strong staff that is dedicated and that is communicating, 50,000 words in a month, I, I, think, I think when we've had four or five people working on a project, we could push out 50 to 100,000 and it's good. Um, if you're working together and you are really, really dedicated to the grind of the product, you can do it. Um, that's, that's an exception, not the rule. That's writing. Writing can take up to six months. Um, that, is, that is just the reality of it. Um, I would say cut that in half for your average supplements, because supplemental material typically doesn't take as much testing. Uh, you're not actually developing as much. You're just sort of adding to something. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit easier. Um, but core material, expect six months for a solid game if you have a crew of people that is dedicated. If you're doing it alone, a year. Um, my advice if you're doing that, if you're trying to write a game by yourself or with just one person uh, uh, with you, write it, hammer it out, just do the whole damn thing. Um, tear it apart and do it again. That's really your only hope. Um, and it's, it's so sad because whenever you get to the end of that product, you're like, I just cranked out 300,000 words. Then you realize you got to scrap 250,000 of it. That was five months of my last six. And it's not wasted work. It's, that's, the difference between, um, that's the difference between game design and like novel writing, is that in game design, you throw away a lot. And almost none of it is wasted. Because everything that you threw away was something that didn't work. And in a game, stuff that didn't work, it's very valuable. Um, I'm sure you've all played games where you found something that didn't work and you wish that it would have been cut. Um, another common myth, we would love to cut stuff. Uh, we would love to change stuff a lot more than we are able to. Uh, once you get to a certain point, though, and you have to pay the electric, um, you can't really turn around. If you're 300,000 words in and you're about done with that product and you're on a tight development schedule, you can't go back and retroactively change things, particularly because... In a game, if you change something at the beginning of the book, you fundamentally change the rest of the book. And you have to acknowledge as a game designer that you are going to have flawed material. There is nothing perfect, period. Um, as, a, as a player, once you've designed, you look at things a lot differently. As a player, you tear apart what you were reading and you're like, I can see where they could have done this differently, but I understand why they did it the way they did. I understand why they couldn't change it. So, first part of the process, writing. You've got your core development material. You cannot start editing until you are done. Editing takes about half as much time as writing. So, say you take six months, editing, expect three. Um, and that's, that's being very nice, because if you have a good editor, you'll probably be doing a lot of rewrites, too. Um, 
quick curiosity here. What's an editor? Someone show hands. What's an editor? What do they do? What do they do? Developmental editor, uh, copy editor, line editor. That's the correct uh, answer. All of the above. So, um, I've written a lot for White Wolf. Um, any of you who have um, paid attention to their books, there are typos. Um, there are a lot of typos. There are page XX references. And all the time on the internet, people are like, they need to, they're literally Hitler. Um, Hitler also made typos. Um, and that their editor needs to burn, uh, die in a fire, whatever it is that they say on the internet these days. Um, and every time, I want to shake them and explain to them that that's not the editor's fault, really. For one, a writer should be going through and looking through their material and trying to cut out all the typos and the glaring grammatical errors. That's hard. Uh, as a writer, particularly in a game setting, I'm just trying to, trying to make the game work. I do go through and I do edit my work. I pay attention to the little squiggly lines in Microsoft Word, but it doesn't always work that way. Uh, it doesn't always get through. A good editor in an RPG book is really someone who is trying to make your message readable and digestible. So it doesn't matter as much if you use the correct usage of the word there as it does that you are able to properly convey what your players need to be doing. Because you're writing an instruction manual. Clarity and the coherence of your vision are the most important things an editor can look for. It's so hard to find an editor that knows this. And you can even tell people, they're like, oh no, I've done editing work in college. Well, you line edited. Um, we don't really need that. That's, that's not that important. Like, you can, you can do that whenever you're going through it, that's, but that's a passing glance. That's like saying that um, I'm a pizza chef. I make pieces of dough that have sauce and cheese on them. Well, you're not really a pizza chef. You, you do make pizzas, but they're just not any good. Uh, there's a lot more to it. So there's nine months right there. Art cannot happen until writing is pretty much done. Um, I'm sure all of you have seen games where the art was probably done at the beginning of the process. They were assigning art at the beginning. And you look at it and you're like, I don't know that there are flaming ponies in this book. I don't know why they have a flaming pony picture. Um, but lo and behold, they do. It's probably because they got it on a stock art site or they said, well, I think we're going to have flaming ponies in this book, so why don't we assign someone to do them? And then they do them, and then later on, they retcon and they change the flying, uh, flaming ponies out because they're not that cool. Um, and so then they have the art. It's done. It's paid for. And they have to put it somewhere. So lo and behold, you got flaming ponies in your book. Um, You'll get that a lot in RPGs because of the way that a development schedule works. Because a lot of developers think that they can do everything congruently, that art can be done at the same time as development, as editing, as writing. Yeah. So you stagger. You have writing and you have editing. Right around about halfway through the writing, you can start art. I wouldn't start it any, any earlier than that because so much stuff can change in later writing and in editing. Uh, so keep it simple. Um, a lot of developers like to use, um, like to do cover art early because they can use it in promotional material, and I can certainly see that the um, the value in that. But I've never once seen a game where that was done, where the game was not 
structured later in such a way that it invalidated the cover. Uh, how many times have you played a game where the cover is like, you're like, that's um, elves on motorcycles, and this is totally a game about wizards. Um, it, and it, there's, there's a disconnect. The cover can look cool, but it doesn't really communicate anything. Um, that's not going to be very really helpful. Uh, so I say, I, I do cover art last. That's, that's my way of doing it. Um, so, writing, editing, art. Once you've got a little bit of art in, and once you've got the initial edits in, then you can start layout. Um, layout is a very tricky monkey because every bit of edits that you do um, has to reflect in the in the layout, and the layout ends up being where you get things like your page XX references, your indices, those sorts of things. Um, they are impossible to do until the very end. If you try to have someone doing layout while you are writing, things will change. And when you have a 200-page book and you change something on page four, you now have 196 pages of layout that you've got to fix. Your layout person will explode <laughs> they, if they do not kill you first. And they, they will have all right in the world to do so. It is, layout is very laborious. Um, there are parts of it that are fun, um, but it can be it, good layout is, is hard work. Uh, it is labor. And... You can't just tell someone, oh, okay, just fix those 196 pages. It doesn't really work that way. InDesign is a pretty intuitive program, but not that intuitive. Not enough to make up for you know human love and attention. How do that work? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I would die. <laughs> I, yeah, and this is yeah, this is purely very modern speaking. Very much um, like we we use InDesign. Um, I feel for anyone that has ever done layout in Quark or in Microsoft Word. Ah, ugh. Word perfect. Yeah. I know someone. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't work. It's 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 harsh. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really really a nightmare. I would I would never wish it on my enemies. Um, what do you use? I use InDesign. Uh, honestly, I, and I've been I've been learning to do InDesign because I have a layout guy that does most of my core books, but my supplement books we're sort of developing while he's doing layout. Um, so the way that our development schedule is staggered, I have to end up doing layout for supplement work. Um, and InDesign is really great. Um, I can't speak enough praise of it. I love it. Um, and I'm not even a design-minded guy. It, it kind of makes me look like I am, um, <laughs> which, which is I guess the software's job. Um, and so that's the basic part of the development cycle. Really, you have other steps, like you have other parts of the process. Printing, um, which I'll actually I'll get into in a moment because that's a little bit more complicated, but printing takes a little bit. Um, marketing. Marketing really shouldn't start until six months before your product comes out. Also, it should never start until at least halfway through your process, at very least. Um, there is an argument to start marketing early. If you if you start too early, you run the risk of oversaturating. Um, you are bombarding people with messages, and they're like, cool, cool, cool. By the time the product comes out, you're like, oh. Um, all the time, I get this with like movies and video games. Uh, the, the, the new Elder Scrolls game, I've been hearing about it for two years, and they've had a release date for like two years. By the time it comes out, I'm going to forget that it was coming out. 
and I probably won't get it on release day because I've just been bombarded. When they got, if they would have gotten me while I was excited, I would have bought it. Uh, but I've long since passed that point. Um, so that's the basic process. That that's that's it. Nine months to a year and a half is is a good goal. Is a good expectation to have. Um, keep in mind, you don't really. St- Start writing per se until you have the game, um, until you have a pretty good idea of what you're writing. That can take a while. Some people do that for years. If you're trying to pay the bills, you can't. You got to. You, you really got to do that initial playtest idea uh, in about a month to three. Uh, if you're really trying to keep on a good development cycle. Okay. Next thing. Um, printing. Printing is the bane of publishers everywhere. Um, for example, I just printed a book, um, and it is a 212-page full-color hardcover book. Um, you can get books out there, uh, like right now you can go on the sales floor and you can find some hardcover full-color books that are like $35, and the reason is is because of really big discounts. Um, printers are able to do that. The basis of comparison, though. My book um, that we just released, it costs $27 per copy to print because I don't have a very, very big print uh, print run. If, I, uh, if I'm printing up to 999 of them, they're going to cost me $27 a piece. If I print 1,000, they cost me $9 each. I am not shitting you. I, I shopped around for these numbers. Once you hit 1,000, that's sort of a sweet spot for color print. And we're talking like, that's, that's, that's shipping my work to Thailand. Um, my books currently, the ones that I'm paying $27 a copy for, um, they are being printed in the U.S. Um, that is, I guess 1,000 is really where it starts to become uh, viable to do it overseas. And that's what a lot of even digital printers do. Yes. So it sounds like 300 is when it becomes really viable to do it overseas because that's when you're paying the same amount as a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're printing three thousand or three hundred, you might as well print a thousand. If you have space. Yes and no. Um, if you if you're printing that many, you probably should already have a plan in, in mind for that. Distribution is a um, distribution is a funny month. Um, that's actually the next part of what I'm going to talk about. The um, So, $27 versus $9 once you hit that sweet spot. And you have this gap. You have 300 books or you have 1,000 books. And 1,000 books is very big. Um, believe you me, I had 100 um, that I was, I was sort of dragging around town um, to get to the dealer's hall, and they're very heavy. At three pounds each, uh, they, that, that gets pretty big. Um, whenever you have 300, that's three times that. It's really terrible. Um, but okay, so the 27th, my initial projection was 22. Um, that's what the printer told me. The reason is, is because I was printing a 200 page book. 200 pages is 22, $23, and 12 more pages is like $5 extra a copy. Where's the disconnect? That's a good question. If you ask the printer, they will basically tell you, eh, 
we have numbers and stuff. There are algorithms. Uh, it is, yes, that is basically it. They, they kill the chicken, and the chicken blood tells them how much it costs to print. Um, and whenever, whenever you are budgeted for about 200 pages, and your layout guy comes out with a you know 230-page book, like we can't do that. That that will kill our budget. And then you carve it, you cut it, and you do everything you can, and you end up with a 1212 or 212-page book, and it's 27, and you can't cut any more. There's really nothing you can do. And you just break the bank. Um, Whenever you're printing 250 copies, that $5 becomes a pretty big chunk of money for um, a budget of otherwise like two, three thousand dollars. It, it almost like it adds about 25% to it. It's terrible, um, and that's the sort of thing that you have to expect uh, from whenever you're doing small press work. Um, and that's that's like digital print on demand, and pretty much the cheapest out there. If you go through a lot, a lot of people nowadays do like Lulu. Uh, that's that's a common one for RPG publishers. If I were to print that book in Lulu, it would be $75 per copy. Now, here's another magic number. If you are going through traditional distribution channels, a good publisher will expect to buy their books, but their prints, at 20 to 25% of the total cost that they expect to charge people. So if you are paying $75 for a book, then you should be expecting to charge your customers $300. How do you been to college? You ever cried about the price of books? That's why. Because it costs a lot of fucking money to print books. And it's, it's, not, the, it's not the publishers, it's not the writers, it's not the school. It ultimately comes down to print and distribution. Um, so, 20 to 25% is what you should expect to be paying for your books. The reason is, and this, this saddens me every time I drop it here, um, distribution. Walmart. A everyone has probably heard that Walmart um, is oftentimes um, accosted for being terrible for um, content creators and for distributors and that sort of thing. Walmart asks you to sell them your product at 50% of your retail price. So if I'm selling a product for $20, they want it for $10. If I am buying my product from the printer for 20 to 25%, that's like five bucks. So I'm making five bucks a copy off the $20 book. Walmart's making 10. So I'm busting my ass and doing all of this work. Walmart's making twice as much as me. Yeah. And for board games, uh, distributors want it for about 60% off. Retailers yeah. Want 50% off. See, that's where the Walmart analogy comes in. Walmart wants 50%. Comic book game and board game distributors, they want between 60 and 70. If you're an untested publisher, they want you to sell at 70% off of retail. So, in the situation that I am selling, say, a book for $50, they're going to want, like, ugh, they're going to want to sell me, sell, me to sell them for, like, 15, 20 bucks at very, very best. And that's if I've negotiated with them. My books cost $27 to print. I would be losing about $10 to $20 off of every copy. Why would I do that? Why would anyone do that? You can't. why brick and mortar stores are going away. Exactly. And they wonder why I give a shit that brick and mortar stores are going away. Exactly. It, it's, it's terrible. Um, I remember I was really excited with my first book that we were, we were buying them for about $5 a piece. They're soft covers. We were buying them for about $5 a piece. And I was like, wow, you know, if I sell these for $25, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you know, quite a bit of profit through direct sales. And you can't undercut stores. 
If you sell your book for $25 um, at a store, if you sell it for $20, they are going to be mad. And they, rightfully so, because you're undercutting them. You're telling people that you could go to the store and pay 25 or you could just buy it from me for 20 I And I would make more money that way. And people will do it. People will be like, oh, yeah, I'd love to buy it for $20 and make you more money. Of course they will. But you're undercutting the store. And that is visibility. That is accessibility that you don't otherwise have. So I buy my book for $5. I want to sell it for 25 And the distributors are wanting it for 10 And... Ultimately, it's, it's sort of a weird disconnect that I have put in all of the work. I have spent a year of my life, and they are making more money off of that than I am. But you can market your book on your website, sell the same cover price, and you're not undercutting anybody. Exactly. As long as you're doing it for the same price, then you're not undercutting everyone. But and you're that's more profit. Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately what I do. It did, uh, I, because I'm an indie publisher, I like to approach things. Every, every book is different. Uh, every book needs a different amount of love. Um, I can do traditional distribution for some books. I can't for others. Um, I, I do direct sales. I do convention sales and stuff. When I, um, so, when I sell at a convention, same book, same analogy. $27 for a copy, I sell it for $50. Um, so that looks like $23. $23, but... A booth is about $1,300 in Gen Con. Uh, so right there, you're, you're looking at you know, 50, 60 copies that you have to sell just to cover your booth costs. Airfare. Um, food. Hotel. Hotel. Um, cab. You've got to hump a lot of books to redo. A lot. And then once you hit that point, and you're like, I've sold 300 books, and I'm starting to recoup my losses. I, I've, hit, I've broken even. Every book from here out is profit. And then it's Sunday, and some guy's like, can I get it at a discount because it's Sunday? And you're like, yes, please, give me money. I need to eat. Um, that's the reality of that. Um, so direct sales, you do make more money, but also you're putting money into, into marketing. Um, you are really having to communicate to these people. Uh, to, to, you have to be out there. My time is valuable. And so when I am, when I am advertising, when I'm pushing things, when I'm at conventions... This weekend, I can't write. I work seven days a week. I write seven days a week. I bust ass on these games. And when I have to take six days off to go to Gen Con, that's six days that I can't be writing. So that's, that's an even bigger cost. It's an abstract cost, but it's most certainly a cost. Um, so, hmm? Now, with that shrinking margin, mm-hmm. how do you go back and budget for the talent? I mean, how do you know the talent budget? It's, it's very difficult, honestly. Um, it's not just being you. You've got paid. You have yeah. paid in advance. Have paid all those other. Well, the one thing that you do whenever whenever you're publishing indie is a little bit different than whenever you're publishing through a traditional house. The first thing that you have to remember is that you don't you aren't paying yourself. Um, you might end up paying yourself, but you do not budget to pay yourself. I never budget to pay myself whenever I, I develop a book um, because that's just going to eat out of my my budget. Basically, that's going to be. It's, it's honestly, it's a made-up number, kind of, um, whenever you try to budget for yourself. So I don't do it. I budget for my talent, um, and that's, that's, that's very, very hard. You have to look at what you expect to sell, and you basically have to roll the dice on that. Um, you have to look at your initial funding. I, for example, a lot of people have recently been using like Kickstarter and other crowdsourcing pro- um, programs, 
Um, I used it for Amaranthine, the most recent book that I did, um, and that helped me uh, determine what my budget was going to be. Um, but again, things will change. You, you will get you know, that extra 12 pages that is going to cost you that extra bit of money. Um, budgeting, a lot of people in business like to think of budgeting as a science, and it's not. It, it's, it's really just not. It is basically, it's very educated guesswork. You can guess very well. You can talk to people who have done what you have done before. Um, but remember, every book is different, every game is different, and every publisher is different. So I can ask 100 publishers what to expect in my budget, and if 100 publishers unilaterally tell me that it is going to cost me $5,000 to publish this book, that, isn't, that doesn't matter. It's good to know, and anecdotal evidence can be valuable, but you can't bet the farm on it. You cannot assume that what is good for that publisher is good for you. Um, it, is, it is something that you have to grow with as a publisher. Budgeting is, um, is very hard at first. It gets a little easier as you go. But there is no magic. There's, there's no way to just mysteriously come up with those numbers and have them to be perfect. Um, you have to understand your audience. Honestly, for money money reasons, you have to understand your audience way better than for game reasons. Uh, whenever you're making a game, whenever you're publishing a book, you can do everything in the world to make it awesome, and then whenever you bring it to the table, what they're doing is their table. They're bringing the table to the table. They're bringing their players to the table. If they like the game, it is partially because of the players, it is partially because of your game. You are never going to tell them, this is how you have to play it. It's not going to work that way. But, so, you, you have to understand players, you have to understand your, your base, but you really have to understand them better for money. Um, you have to understand how many there are, how invested they are, how many people they expect at a table to buy it. Um, I, I, another big myth is that um, you, you have some core audience, some people that buy games, and then you know they have friends at their table who don't buy games. They're not really the market. That, as far as I'm concerned, that's bullshit. Because everyone at that table is the end user. Some of them, uh, some games that I've played in, uh, everyone has the book at the table, whatever. Usually that's not the case. Uh, that's just the kind of games I play. But um, Everyone is that end user, and you have to understand it. Even if they're not putting down their hard-earned money, they are still using the product. And they are just as valid a customer as the person who put down the money. Yeah. Um, with all the considerations regarding the $27 book, mm -hmm. uh, how do you make the different decision not to go black and white? Well, <laughs> funny you should mention that. Um, I'm now testing my black and white options. Black and white is probably how I'm going to, why I'm going to, um, or why, how I'm going to get into traditional distribution for this particular product. Um, because $27 versus $6. $6 is a lot different than $27. And that $6 book I can put through traditional distribution. Um, the problem is, is that if you don't budget for it up front, then you have all of the um, our art layout is all in color. You have to basically redo it or at least re-render it. 
Uh, so that's a whole different part of the process. And you have paid for the work, like you're doing, you had the work done in color. So it's, it's again, one of those things that you have to sort of assess as you go. Um, in this case, in, in our particular case, which only helps so much, um, we are able to have both. We are able to have a color product and a black and white product, and they work fine. Um, this is why games will never be big, big business, because we have to match vision to product. Um, this is not just something where we can maximize profits and say, this is going to make the most bang for our buck. No, I said, this game needs to be color. The things that we are doing need to be expressed as a full-color hardcover tone. It just deserves it. And ultimately, we will make less money because of that. But it's a better game for it. So it's, it's a balancing act. We're, we're artists. Did you consider going ebook? Oh yeah, we definitely do ebooks. Actually, PDF option is pretty much the place where we make most of our money. Um, we don't make as much off of the print runs. Ebooks are big in RPGs. Only um, get bigger. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I iPads are beautiful for for PDFs and games. Um, and we, we sell a lot of them. Um, I honestly, and that's another option that's kind of cool with um, Print on Demand is that you can, um, like with Drive-Thru RPG, for example, you can do a digital version, and then you can also do an alternate version that is a Print on Demand version, so your customers can just go to the website, order it, it is print to made and sent to them. It costs a little, it makes you a little bit less, but you don't have the same investment on a print run. But whenever you go to a convention, you don't. You, I mean, you can order a print run, but it's expensive. It's really expensive to do that. Um, but it gives you the option. Like you, you, your customers have that accessibility. And really, I think one thing about RPGs is it's a niche hobby. Um, you can't. There's no central repository for everything. You cannot go to Walmart of RPGs. It just doesn't really exist. You have to put them in different. <laughs> I know, right? You have to put them in different places. Uh, you have to make them accessible in a million different ways, and many of those ways will make you less money. Um, you cannot expect to say, I'm going to make $15 off of every copy, because you're going to have the distribution option where you make three bucks off of the same copy. And it sucks, and it is what it is. But you have to understand that going in. Uh, if you want your game to be successful, if you want your game to be available, you have to take up an occasional bullet. Um, sucks. Um, we are running towards the end, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to address some questions because I, I, that's the process. Uh, that, that's, that's the way that it works, um, and that's some of the foibles that we've had, um, but I want to make sure that if you have any questions or curiosities, I can get to them. Your game has like a, a custom-made, I mean, they all kind of custom-made rule set. Yeah. What do you do to protect that intellectual property? So someone else doesn't say, you that's know. a great system. You don't. Copyright. It's actually impossible. Yeah. Um, the only thing that you can do, copyright law, okay, so copyright law is a really weird thing for games. Um, if I make a game, um, a real estate trading game, um, that is set around a square board that has all of the properties of New Jersey, uh, or Atlantic City, New Jersey, on it, and the mechanic is that I roll two dice, I go around the board, whenever I land, uh, I have the option to buy the property. If I choose to not buy the property, it goes to auction and all the other players can buy it. And the person who is last standing, who has not gone bankrupt, wins. I can do that. 
um, I am absolutely allowed. If I call it monopoly, I cannot do it. Words can be trademarked. As long as you express the rules in different words, they are not copyrighted. Um, fortunately, our hobby is pretty cool. Um, games are a pretty good environment. You don't really have a lot of people who are interested in ripping things off, even if they're really good. Because um, most people want to do their own thing. Um, there are occasionally people who want to rip things off. And that's the beauty of games, actually. Every game that I've ever done, I was cribbing off of someone else. I have some really unique shit out there, but there is nothing that I have done that has not been built on the backs of everyone since Gygax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was a confessed thief of intellectual property. Mm -hmm. um, there is an argument that unfortunately it is, um, it is perfectly allowed within the scope of U.S. and most world copyright laws. There is also an argument that it makes better games. And that he, um, I am of a mind, personally, I make, I make my games all um, under Creative Commons licensing. I am of a mind that everyone should be able to take my stuff, bring it out there, and make something better with it. Because there's an investment. I ask for attribution. If you want to take my game, tear it apart, build something else based on it, and you just say the idea was based on something done by this person, then that helps build that community around my product. People are like, oh crap, that was you know, X product by you to fill. Uh, I'm going to go to their website, I'm going to check it out. Um, sometimes people will, will actually buy from it. I've had people do um, modifications and hacks in my games, and other people have read them and then come back and bought my stuff. Um, and that's, that's awesome. We are a community, uh, and for the most part, we are all in this for the love. There are very few exceptions to that. You will never really run into those people in, in publishing independently. Uh, you'll, if you ever work for you know, wizards or something like that, you will run into the occasional person who is not in it for the love. Um, but for the most part, we all are. Um, game text is, on the other hand, it is copyright protected, uh, and that is very, very simple. Copyright is a lot simpler than people make it out to be, and that if you do it, if you publish it, if it is extant and it is, um, it is out there, it's protected. Uh, if you need to, if someone actually cribs your text, you can take them to court. You can take them to uh, it's, yeah. We get a lot of times people are like, oh yeah, copyright law, they're breaking the law, they're breaking the law. Actually, no. Copyright law is never really breaking the law. Um, that's something that people don't necessarily understand. Um, copyright cases are all civil cases. And right now, if I wanted, I could take you to a copyright law, um, court. I could say that you're ripping off my shit. Uh, and my case is just as valid as like the RIAA because it's civil court. Uh, civil court really is not law in the proper sense. It's not criminal law. Um, if you run into a situation like that, you are the strict minority in games. Very rarely does that happen. It does happen. Very rare. And if it does, you take them to civil court. Fortunately, whenever people are ripping shit off of you, um, it's pretty obvious. And civil court will, will um, as long as you can prove damages, you're good. Um, and in RPGs, if you take someone to civil court and win because they ripped you off, that's controversy, and controversy sells games. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> did you, did you, did you steal my game? 
Yeah, right, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's not a settlement. <laughs> I heard that it's uh, that it costs more to steal someone else's game than to come up with your own. Oh yeah, through through, um, through legal fees and, and possible damages. Oh yeah. Well, possible damages is exactly 100% of what you made. Um, it, well, no, no, that's even that's a crock of shit. It's 100% on average. Um, usually it's more than that. <laughs> um, a lot of times, like the RIAA says that if you copy a CD, you are uh, liable for $7,000 per track. Uh, you, you paid a dollar for a CDR. Like, uh, copyright laws is weird. Uh, it's, it's very strange. Like, clearly I'm not a copyright lawyer, but I do, I do pay very close attention to copyright law. Um, yeah, it, it's very, very expensive to steal people's shit on, on copyright law. Uh, what if your game is based on like a, a standard game? Like you gave the example, Monopoly. No one owns like the copyright of chefs or checkers or anything like that. That's public domain. Those are public domain. Yeah. Fair. Public domain. Public domain. Uh, well, okay. That that's it, actually no. It's <laughs> games are effectively public domain. You cannot you cannot copyright rules. You cannot patent rules. You can you can copyright text. So, if you find the Parker Brothers version of chess that they printed and what have you, and you copy their text, their text is protected. Didn't Watsy patents having cards? Yes. That's, yes. that's not a that's not a rule though. Yeah, we can. <laughs> kind of, kind of. Um, that is, yeah, yeah. It's is that that's very complex how they got that to pass, but basically um, they were. They were patenting a specific method of a product behavior um, because tapping a card, the way that the patent is worded, because we had a huge kerfuffle about this, the, the way that the patent is work, worded is not the player's behavior of tapping the card, it is the fact that the, the card changes functionality when it is turned sideways. Um, so it's just like if you turn over a car and it's on, uh, the, the standard ignition in a car is patented. It's not because you can turn it. That is not the behavior. The behavior is not what's important. It's the, the different function. Um, so you can't have the mechanic where you turn the card sideways and it has different functionality. But and you can't copy their rules text for that. You can put a token on the card. You can do a million different things with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is a weird one, and that one has been often just. Uh, disputed, but that's the ultimate argument comes down to is the different functionality when the thing is in a different position. Uh, it has nothing to do with the game rules per se. It's a functionality issue, which is uh, mechanic. Like, not mechanics like game mechanics, but mechanics like engineering mechanics. Um, and yes, it's a crime shit. Basically. <laughs> like, that's, that's the other thing about copyright law. Uh, copyright law is, and patent law to, to a certain extent is bullshit. Uh, it is whatever you can argue. Um, it is very much a practice for people that are very well trained in rhetoric. Um, that is why lawyers are copyright are copyright friendly. Like, that's why you need a lawyer if you want to bother with copyright that much. It's it's silly, but it is what it is. But anyway, if you have Milton Bradley chess, um, you you find their chess. You cannot copy their text. You can still make chess. Um, games are referred to like a standard set of rules, like. Base rules of the U.S. Chess Federation, or is that something? That I bet you they're copyrighted. I, I don't know, but I bet you their standard rules are. 
if you refer to them and you say page 64 in the uh, U.S. Jackson Foundation or whatever, that's fine. Reference is cool. Uh, that's fair use. But if you are actually copying their text, I bet you it's copywritten. I don't know for that specific anecdote. Um, as long as you're not copying the text, but you're rewording it in a different way, you're safe. Um, I actually, I, yeah, I've, I've considered doing games based on stuff like that. Um, and you can, you can absolutely do it. Uh, you, what you'll notice in, in, in media and games and stuff, you'll often see references to it. Uh, like, you'll see reference to this is the way a knight moves, and that's how your, you know, war machine maybe or whatever moves. Um, you'll, you'll see reference to it, and it's perfectly viable. Because you can't copyright game mechanics. It's, you just can't do it. Um, and that's why, if you pay attention, like the dealer's hall is a good place to do this research. If you go out there, you'll find Monopoly for a million different things. Um, sometimes they are licensed. A lot of times they're not. Um, technically, there's an argument that they could be sued for using the Opoly ending, but that has also been, in a number of cases, ruled as fair use. There's one game company that all they do is specialize in Monopoly. Yeah. yeah, like you can do like Ohio State University yeah. Opoly. Yeah. Um, and they're absolutely not licensed. Uh, and they, they were the instance in case where they were, uh, they were going to be sued. Um, the, the case was thrown out because it was considered parody, uh, which is covered under fair use. And if I recall correctly, I believe the base, base rules mm -hmm. were, are actually a public domain at this mm -hmm. point. For that Monopoly, yeah, Monopoly is actually a bad example. And that's Monopoly why some of these can come out because you, everyone is referring to the base yeah. rules that were originally published in what 1920s, something like that. Yeah, they, they are published domain. Um, the um, <laughs> copyright law is very weird. Uh, in uh, U.S. copyright law specifically, uh, because there's a joke in copyright circles that um, that copyright the the date where or, sorry the length of time it takes for something to become public domain is the difference between the current year and the year of the release of Steamboat Willie plus two. Because every, every time the public domain laws um, start to... specifically rewrote it for... Yeah, they've written it for Disney about six or seven times. Disney ripped off everyone, and then they can't use Disney. Yeah, so, but according, according to current copyright law, Mickey Mouse will become public domain very soon. So the Supreme Court will probably be like, no. Um, they can renew it. Uh, they can renew the copyright. No, they can't, actually. They, they're not able to renew the copyright. What it is is that Steamboat Willie will become public domain, but modern interpretations of Mickey will not. So, for example, you cannot do Epic Mickey. You can do Steamboat Willie Mickey. Um, it's it's convoluted, but no, they, you you can't actually renew it. What will happen is, is that the Supreme Court will rule that it is um, it is necessary for the American economy to keep Steamboat Willie out of the public domain. <laughs> oh yeah, but they've done it a number of times. Yeah, I've been waiting to do a port called Steamboat Willie. I know, right? It's <laughs> the marketing rights itself. <laughs> Every era builds on us. Generation before that, for absolutely. Technology stuff, but now we we get this era where we can't. Yeah, because we and we're like the only ones that can't. Right. Um, the rest of the world is not like this, yeah. uh, for the most part. Every, most most other nations have yeah, probably just lie their heads off and yeah. Well, I think that part of that is that, that America is such a young nation. 
We don't really understand yeah, that they have 600-year-old properties out there. <laughs> they have real castles, not plastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody has ever sued people for robbing them that way. But Sherlock Holmes, how, that's, that's a whole different story. Um, so what time is it? How are we doing after lunch? Okay, okay. Well, I'll let you guys go. Um, if you are interested, I will be still around. I'm going to do another panel on game design, um, and we're actually going to make a game uh, during the uh, thing. Um, is that an RPG in an hour? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Um, yes, yes, oh. that was interesting. Um, so, yeah, it was good stuff. Um, and if you have the opportunity, uh, come by our booth, uh, 1356 in Dealers Hall. Um, we have very, very fun games um, of all shapes and sizes, well, three shapes and sizes, um, mm -hmm. there. And we would love to see you. Uh, so come say hi to us. Uh, Machine Age Productions. Oh, by the way, there's also a seminar, The Legal Rules of Gaming, yeah. in this building at 3 p.m., if you don't know. There's also at 7 p.m., I believe, Protect Yourself. Okay. It deals with copyright laws and stuff. I do board games. Uh, but that's tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Patterson training. Okay. Mark. Oh. Yeah, yeah. If you have, if you have the tickets, drop them off up here. I'm supposed to turn them in, but like they don't really care about it too much. Yeah, well, it's one of the free seminars. They're not. Sure. Okay. Okay. Okay.